Before we get to the word, and God's given me a great word for you today from Acts chapter 18. But before we get to that today, I want to talk a little bit about our annual missions conference. Every year in January, the third week of January, we have a, a conference that we host here at the church where we bring in missionaries from all around the world. Uh, 18 of those missionaries are actually part of our church body here at Destiny. And we bring them in and, and we celebrate the work that God's doing through them. We, we raise funds for them uh, to support the work that they're doing. And we seek to encourage them through the word of God. Uh, we call this missions conference Light Your World. And again, we've hosted it the third week of January for the last 59 years. Let's give ourselves a big hand as a church for doing that. Now, this year, 2021 and 2020, going into 2021, is a year like uh, none of the other 59 years that came before it. And as we, as leaders, have been praying about this and considering this, uh, what to do for our conference in 2021, uh, having to make a decision now because we have to make plans and things like that, we have decided that the best thing to do is to not have the annual missions conference the third week of January. And I know that that is disappointing. I'm, I'm very disappointed about that. I'm very sad about that. But we just don't see a way that we can bring people in from all over the world, spend a week eating together, hugging each other, loving each other the way a missions conference is supposed to be. We just don't see a way that we can do that right now the way that things are. Uh, so um, uh, last month, actually, I went to a conference and the conference that I went to is a pastor's conference. And I have to confess to you, we partied like it was 2019. <laughs> we just pretended like everything was cool. And, and let me tell you, it was wonderful. But on the backside of that conference, about 100 people came down with COVID-19, uh, several seriously hospitalized, um, even people that I know and love very dearly got very, very sick. Praise God, I didn't catch it. Um, I went and got tested. I came back negative. I thank the Lord for that. But then I'm like, maybe I'm the one that gave it to everybody. You know, I, I don't know. Um, anyway, don't tell anybody I said that. Um, we, we just don't see a way to responsibly do the conference the way that a conference is supposed to be done. And so we've had to make this very difficult decision. It hasn't been an easy decision, but the elders, we've prayed about this. We've delayed the decision as long as we could because we've been hoping that we would see things moving in the right direction, but that's not the direction that things are moving right now. And so we're making this decision now because people need to plan and travel arrangements and all that. Now, however, I think that as a church, we can still be a great blessing to our missionaries. And so that's why in your seat, there's a little pledge form. Because what the Lord put on our hearts is that even though we're not going to host the conference, that we should still seek to raise the budget that we typically raise for the conference. And instead of using that budget on travel and hotel and food expenses and the things like that that we use the budget on, we should just raise the budget for the conference and send a big offering the third week of January to our 18 missionaries. 
And so that's what the Lord's put on our heart to do. Typically, we raise around this time of year, between now and the missions conference, around $25,000. And if we do that, that'll allow us to send about $1,500 or so to each one of our missionaries, which would be a great blessing. Personally, I'd love to see us send a lot more than that. And so however much we are able to raise for missions between now and the third week of January, third week of January, we're just going to cut a big offering to all of our missionaries. And so that's the goal. And so on this pledge form, you'll see that is a carbon copy. Uh, it, has a, it has a space there in the middle, a really big space. We put that big by faith, trusting that you could put a really big number in there. And then, of course, the place for your name, and then it says at the bottom that we'll complete this pledge drive on January 17th, 2021. And so if we go to the next slide, I have some, uh, just some, uh, some thoughts, some suggestions of some numbers you could write in there. Um, I guess my faith is capped at 5,000, but um, anyway, I, I think it's important for all of us to be involved at some level. And so this is a pledge that we're making. You don't have to hand in the offering today. You could if you wanted to. But this is a pledge that we're saying between now and the third week of January that we're going to give this money uh, into Destiny World Missions. And everything that comes in, we're going to uh, give to our missionaries in January. And so you could take this. You could fill it out right now. There's a pin in your um, seat there if, if you already know what the Lord's put on your heart to do. This pin, we had these made. It says Destiny World Missions on there. They are yours to keep. You can keep these pins, take them home. As The people in the first service were really excited about the pins. Um, they were really excited. So I, I thought you guys would be too, but apparently not. Anyway, I was surprised at how excited they were in the first service. But anyway, um, you're able to t take this home, pull the carbon copy off. Um, at the end of service, you can just leave it on your seat or you can hand it to one of the ushers on the way out. If you need to pray about it over the next week or so, what the Lord would have you do, um, you could do that as well and bring that pledge form in next week. And then ag again, continue to, uh, to bring that offering in between now and the third week of January. We love our missionaries. Uh, 2020 has been a, a difficult year, a challenging year for everybody. And even our missionaries, too, have faced a, a certain set of unique challenges. And the verse that the Lord put on my heart, uh, as far as this offering goes, is Galatians 6.10. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. And our member missionaries are a part of us. They're part of our church family, our household of faith. And I, as we have an opportunity to do good, I think that we should seize that opportunity. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray over this offering, these pledges that we're making. And I'm going to pray over the word uh, this morning as we get into it today. Father, I thank you for the wonderful time of worship that we've had. Lord, such a privilege to be able to come here with our, our church family and to, to lift up our voices and to sing our praises and to lift up your name. The name of Jesus, which is above every name. Lord, we, we're, we're, we're so grateful for this opportunity. God, we're reminded that there are so many uh, believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, all around the world and even in our own country who aren't able to gather with their church family today. 
Lord, we remember them and we ask that you would give them strength and encouragement as they continue to walk out their work of faith, their life of faith. Lord, over this offering and these pledges that we're making, Lord, they're, they're, they're a hope. Lord, they're, they're, they're uh, something that you've put in our heart to, to be a blessing to others. Lord, I believe even that we make these pledges in faith. And as we do so, we're trusting in you, trusting that you will be the one who ultimately supplies because you're the one who supplies all of our needs. You supply all of the needs for our missionaries. But we thank you that we uh, get to be a part of the supply chain of you being, bringing blessing not only to us, but through us. Lord, bless our church, bless our church people as we make these pledges in faith. And Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we turn to your word today, we turn with expectant hearts, knowing that when your word is preached, that you speak to us. Lord, give us ears to hear, uh, give us eyes to see. Lord, help us to understand how it is that you want us to live each and every single day, moment by moment, as we walk out our faith. Lord, our faith is not just something intellectual, it's not just some idea but it's how we live each and every day. So help us, Lord, through the power of your spirit to live lives that are faithful to you and to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Acts chapter 18, we're finishing up Paul's second missionary journey and we're moving into his third missionary journey. We know that Paul, in the book of Acts, he takes three missionary journeys that are, are documented for us Today we're going to see the, the conclusion. It's, it's, it's a transitionary passage. It talks about three different stories. And one of them is this transition of Paul as he moves from his second missionary journey into his third missionary journey. And so we're going to look at that part first. And then we're going to look at uh, two other stories from this passage. And they're all interrelated. And you'll remember that Paul, last week we saw he was in the city of Corinth a city that was full of, of really sensuality and, and people who, um, they just needed Jesus. And so Paul went there and he brought them Jesus and he planted a church there. And that Paul had stayed there at this point in time for 18 months. He's been there in Corinth for a year and a half. And it says that after this, verse 18, Paul stayed many days longer. So how long Paul stays there? Possibly up to two years that Paul was there with this church, starting this church in Corinth. And then he took leave of the brothers. He told them all farewell, farewell, and he set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. He cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And it doesn't say what church he greeted, but there's two clues about the church that he went to. First is that, or really three clues. First is that he lands in Caesarea. The second is that he goes up to the church. And the third clue is that it doesn't mention the church to us. And so these three clues tell us that the church Paul went to was the church in Jerusalem. To go to the church in Jerusalem, traveling from Ephesus, you would land in Caesarea. 
Caesarea is a port city. It's a place that we visit when we travel to Israel. I don't know if anyone here was with us when we traveled to Israel in 2018, but if you've traveled to Israel, you have visited Caesarea. And you have to go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill. And the fact that it doesn't tell us the church, but only says the church, it helps us know that this was the church in Jerusalem. So Paul goes, he gives a report to uh, Peter and the other apostles that are there. And says, after this, he went down to Antioch. Antioch, of course, is his home base. And then after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So now this is Paul concluding his second missionary journey, spending some time recuperating, getting rested up, and then going back out now on his third missionary journey. And he starts by going around and encouraging the churches. A couple things I want to show you in this passage before we get to the next two stories. The first is that Paul spent a significant amount of time in Corinth. A long time, two years. This wasn't typically what he did. In Thessalonica, for example, he was run out of town after two weeks. In Berea, he was only there for about a month before they ran him out of town. In Philippi, again, only about a month. Paul could typically only stay in a place for a little bit of time before they got mad at him and they tried to kick him out of town. And we saw last week that that happened in Corinth, but that the government officials really under the guidance of God's hand had made it available for Paul to stay in Corinth and to preach the gospel and to raise up this church for about two years. Now imagine that for me, if you will, sitting under the teaching of the apostle Paul for two years. And church wasn't, they didn't do church the way that we do it, only coming once a week. They, they lived in smaller communities, communities where you weren't separated by miles and miles and miles like we are in San Antonio, a large urban area. They obviously didn't have cars, right? So there wasn't 410 and I-10 and 1604 traffic to deal with. They didn't have that issue. They could get wherever they wanted within a few minutes just walking across the town. And so the disciples, the, the, the Christians would spend a lot of time together. It, it wasn't uncommon for them to spend almost every day together. And so imagine, if you will, being instructed and taught the Word of God by the Apostle Paul for two years, almost every day. You would think that this church would be the most godly, the most trouble-free, the most easygoing, well-running church you ever heard of, right? You would think, right? But when Paul sits down to write this church, and we have these letters in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, do we find a church that is problem-free? Do we find a church where everything is just going peachy? No, in fact, things are going uh, quite bad in the church. They've got divisions among each other. The church is split into factions. There's members of the church who are suing each other, taking each other to court. There are people in the church committing uh, really grotesque acts of sexual immorality. There are even people who are discriminating against one another as they take communion together. And some people are enjoying the communion supper. They're enjoying the Lord's Supper so much that they're getting drunk on the communion wine during communion. They're drinking so much 
that they're leaving church drunk. Now, that's why we serve grape juice in little tiny cups, because we don't want anybody to have that problem. So th- this is a troubled church. Why do, I, why do I point this out for you? Because sometimes in church life, we think that uh, there shouldn't be any problems at church. But church is full of problems. Church bodies, church families are, are full of problems. Why is that? Because churches are full of people. The only problem-free church is an empty church. And that's no church at all. It's just a building. We are the church. And all of us, we, we come into the church and, and God brings us into his family. He calls us by name out of the world and, and he calls us into his family. But, and, and, and he does declare that we are righteous. And so when God looks at us, he sees the work of his son, Jesus. We are declared righteous, his righteousness imputed to us. Now, at the same time, we are to work out our salvation. And even though we've been declared righteous, it hasn't yet made us righteous right here and right now. That we still live in the world and we still live in the flesh and there are still a, there's still a battle raging between the, the devil and sin and the flesh. How many of you have experienced that? Amen. So that the things you know you ought to do and the things you want to do are the things you don't do sometimes. And the things you know you ought not do are the things that you do do sometimes. And when you get a bunch of people together from all different walks of life coming in, having been saved by God, being added to a family yet still coming in carrying some of the the weight and the baggage of sin and the past experiences that we've all had. And then in the end, we're all only human beings with our own faults, our own weaknesses, our own failures. We all come together and sometimes there's problems. And yes, Jesus is building his church. And yes, we are full of the spirit of God. And yes, we love each other, but sometimes there's some issues. But it doesn't mean that the church has failed. It doesn't mean that God has failed. It doesn't mean that the spirit is not at work. And I've seen, I've grown up in church. I've been in church my whole life. I think it's a great blessing. Nearly 40 years uh, in the church. I've seen people uh, through, through the history of, of our church, uh, people come and people go and I've, I've seen people become hurt because of things that have happened. And that happens sometimes in a church. But we can work through those things as we move forward with the love of Christ in our hearts. But what I want to dispel for you is this idea of the perfect church. This idea that, well, there's a, there, there's a perfect church out there and I just got to go find that place. And when I get there, everything will be perfect. Let me tell you, that will never happen before the Lord returns. And if you find that place, don't stay there because you'll ruin it as soon as you get there because you you bring yourself there. And again, I say this with all the love in my heart. And we, the Bible tells us to bear with one another, to pursue unity, to pursue patience, that sometimes it's hard work loving one another. If you're married, you could say, don't say amen, but you know it's true. You know it's true. And 
And how much so now in, 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 the, in the church? So again, I just want to show that to you. We, we need to not give up on the church. We need to not give up on the church, the body of Christ. Because it's as we come together that God works in our lives in, a, in an amazing and powerful way. The second thing I want to highlight for you in this short passage is this phrase that Paul uses in verses 20 and 21. He, he goes to Ephesus and he, he teaches them in the synagogue and, and they love it. They say, this is awesome. Thank you for teaching us about Jesus. Thank you for teaching us about the Messiah. Stay longer. We want to hear more of this. They invite him to stay versus running him out of town. This is something new. Nevertheless, the Lord has put it on Paul's heart to get back to Jerusalem. And, and so he tells them, I can't stay now, but, verse 21, I will return to you if God wills. If God wills. It's a very important statement that Paul makes here. And it shows us that ultimately the decision is not up to him. He knows that he may have it in his heart to come back, but what will determine whether or not he comes back is not his will, but the will of God. You see, Paul understands that there is a will, a, 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 a will of God, a, a, a sovereign will of God that supersedes whatever he wants, that supersedes whatever he desires, that God's plan is the plan and purpose that will stand. And so th this reminds us of what uh, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, wrote in his letter. If you'll flip over there with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 quickly this morning. James writes this about this very same topic. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. I, I love the way James talks. He's just so practical. He says, come now. He's like, man, come on, listen. Listen to what I'm saying. You who say, we're going to go there. We're going to do this. We've got our big plans. He says, come on. The, the, guys, think. Think about what you're saying. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Do you know what tomorrow will bring for you? None of us knows. I have no idea what tomorrow will be like. I have no idea what the next hour of my life will be like. Now, I make my plans. I have thoughts about how I want it to go. But at the end of the day, I really have no clue. I have no clue. And what James is saying is, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life, he says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. James says that we need to submit our will to God's will. We need to submit our plans to God's plans. Yes, we make plans, but the only way those plans will be accomplished is if God wills for them to be accomplished. 
And we need to, like Paul, understand that the future is in God's hands. The future is in God's hands. And this is so much, such a great comfort to us as believers, this great truth about our sovereign God, that no matter what comes my way, no matter what happens tomorrow, I can rest assured that God's plan and purpose will stand and that nothing can thwart his plan. All of our lives, all of our plans are ultimately in God's hands. And so we don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our own ingenuity. We don't trust in our own ability to make things go a certain way. Yes, we use the gifts and talents that we have. Yes, we apply them at work. We apply them in our lives. But at the end of the day, I can sleep at night and rest assured that it is God's plan and that it is God's purpose that will ultimately stand. Now, moving on to the end of chapter 18 and the first story in chapter 19. These are two stories that really have to do with the same topic. And that's why they're put together this way, why Luke puts them together right next to each other. And you have to remember that the chapter markers were not originally in the text. When Luke wrote the book of Acts, he didn't finish out chapter 18 and write 19 at the top and start into 19. That really these are to be taken, I believe, as one, uh, really one story uh, in two parts. And so looking at verse 24, it says, A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, Alexandria is in Egypt, he came to Ephesus. Remember, Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. And it says this man, Apollos, was an eloquent man. He could speak well. He, he, was a, a, he had good speech and, and could turn a phrase in a way that people enjoyed listening to. He was competent in the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He had studied God's word. He, he had hidden it in his heart. He knew the word of God. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It says that he was fervent in spirit, that he was a lively person, that when he spoke, he spoke with some enthusiasm and, and some energy and that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though, this is a key phrase here, though he only knew the baptism of John. We're going to come back and look at that. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So there were some things that Apollos had about his his theology, about his teaching, his doctrine that wasn't quite fully formed. And so Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside, remember these companions of Paul, and explain to him the truth of the gospel more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, again, that's the region where Corinth was, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Then he arrived, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. 
And now this second story that really is a part of this same theme. It says, as it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And so Paul now returns to Ephesus, the place that he said he would come back if the Lord willed. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Again, this key phrase, John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were all about 12 men in all. Now, reading these two stories, you wouldn't think that there's much controversy here. But there actually is a lot. These are actually two hotly debated uh, stories within Christianity, within the body of Christ. And the debate is over this question. Are these people, Apollos and these 12 men in Ephesus, are these people Christians already? Are they already born again? Or do they yet still need to believe in Jesus Christ? It is hotly debated. But I believe, and I'm going to try to convince you of it, that these are people who were the kind of the last ingathering of the Old Testament saints, and they were not yet fully believers in Jesus Christ, which means, of course, that they were not born again, and they were not yet Christians. Now, we know that the only way to be a Christian, the only way to be born again, is to believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. To receive the gospel. And we've seen this uh, again and again through the book of Acts. A couple of examples. Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Peter preaching. He says, repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Paul preaching to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, this issue of believing in Jesus, th this is the issue. Th this is the issue of which, which it, it defines whether or not we are a Christian or whether we are not. Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And so for someone to believe truly and fully in Jesus, they need to hear the gospel, they need to receive the gospel, they need to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. This includes his sinless life. This includes his atoning death on the cross. This includes his victorious resurrection from the dead, granting new life to us who would believe in him. This includes his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he now rules and reigns over all history. And this includes his imminent return. People who believe these things are Christians. People who do not know or believe they are not Christian because they have not believed in Jesus 
Christ. Now, as we come back and examine these two stories of Apollos and these men in Ephesus, in verse uh, 25 of Apollos, it says, he only knew the baptism of John. Again, in chapter 19, when Paul asked them, how were you baptized? They said, we've only been baptized into John's baptism. So quickly, I want to look at this. What is John's baptism? These are where Apollos was. This is where these 12 disciples were. They had come all the way up to the baptism of John. And so John chapter 1, if you'll flip back there with me quickly today. John chapter 1. Let's look at John's baptism, John the Baptist. Verse 6 of John chapter 1 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Of course, the light is Jesus. Verse 19, it says, This was the testimony of John. They came and they asked him, Who are you? And he said, I am not the Christ. They asked him again, well, then who are you? In verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. There he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In verse 29, it gives us the testimony of John. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, he says, this is he, this is Jesus. This is the one I've been talking about. I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On he whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, this is the crux. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What was the baptism of John? It was a baptism of repentance. What was John's ministry? John's ministry was to get the people of God ready, to get Israel ready for their Messiah, to prepare the way of the Lord. He was the one to reveal to Israel who the Messiah was. God showed him clearly that the Messiah, the Christ, was Jesus. And so when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John had revealed the Messiah to Israel. He had, he had, his ministry was to proclaim to Israel that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had done. But these disciples in Ephesus and this man named Apollos, that is as far as they've come. That's all they know about Jesus. 
They know that John baptized them in the Jordan River. They know that he, they declared, John declared that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. But that's all they know. They don't know about his sinless life. They don't know about the miracles that he performed. They don't know about his death on the cross to atone for sin. They don't know about his resurrection from the dead. They don't know that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. They don't know that he's coming again to establish his kingdom. They have not yet heard the full gospel. And so what happens is Apollos, it says he was instructed in the way of the Lord but this is a, a, an Old Testament phrase. This phrase is used again and again in the Old Testament to simply describe the ways of God, the things of God. And he knew the Old Testament scriptures that culminated in Jesus as the Messiah. You say, well, it says that Apollos was teaching about Jesus and that he was. He was teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. But he didn't know about the death and the burial and the resurrection. His knowledge stopped at the baptism of John. And so Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, they hear Apollos teaching and he's doing a good job. He's he's pointing to the scriptures. He's, He's leading people to Christ. And then he stops. He doesn't tell them about Jesus, the sacrifice. He doesn't tell them about the victorious resurrection. And so they pull Apollos aside and they say, hey, you're teaching some great stuff, but there's more to the story. There's more to the story than than Jesus was just a good teacher. There's more to the story than, than Jesus is simply the Savior. Let me tell you how he accomplished salvation for his people. And so they instruct him in the way of the Lord, in the way of Jesus more accurately. They share the rest of the gospel with him. Apollos receives it. Apollos believes it. They write a letter of endorsement for him and they send him off to help this church in Corinth that needs a lot of help. Then the similar story in Acts Acts chapter 19. Very similar story. These 12 disciples in Ephesus And you would say, well, it calls them disciples. Doesn't that mean that they're Christians? Not necessarily. You see, the word disciple is a common word. It's a word that they used in that day very commonly. It simply means that they followed something. They followed a certain set of teaching. The issue is, what are they following? What is the teaching that they're following? Well, when Paul questions them, they say, well, we only know the baptism of John. Paul says, guys, there's more to the story. That there's more about Jesus. John came to prepare the way for the Messiah. But let me tell you who that Messiah is. He's Jesus. And let me tell you about what he's done. Upon hearing this, what do they do? They receive Jesus. They're baptized in his name and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, why does all of this matter? Let me bring this home to us for where we are and where we live. You see, all of us have people in our lives who say they believe in God, who may even know some things of the Bible. They may even know a lot about the Bible. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they went to Sunday school. Maybe they raised their hand at a VBS. Maybe they were even baptized. But they have not believed the gospel. Either they need some more explanation on it, 
Maybe they've never truly heard it. Maybe they've heard it many times, but they've never really heard it. I can't tell you how many people have shared their testimony with me, and maybe you have one that is similar. I grew up in church. I went to church my whole life. I was there every Sunday, but I never understood the gospel. I never knew the guy. I, I heard the stories. I, I, I knew about Jonah. I knew about Moses. I knew about Abraham. I knew about Noah. I, I knew the stories, but I didn't understand how they pointed to Jesus. I, I didn't truly understand the gospel. But now the Lord has, has shown me. The Lord has opened my eyes. The Lord has opened my heart. The Lord has opened my ears. And, and I believed and I received Jesus Christ. How many of you have heard a testimony like that before? How many of you, that is your testimony? You see, there's a difference in hearing with your ears and truly hearing and receiving with your heart. There are many people who have heard the gospel. The sound waves have reverberated in. They've, they've made connection with their eardrums, but it has not traveled from their head to their heart. There are many people who have had open ears but closed hearts. And I believe that we all know people, friends, family members, co-workers, people in our lives that we know and love who say they believe in God, who may even know some things about the gospel. But like Apollos, when we hear them talk, there's just something a little bit off. That there's just something missing, that there's, that there's some sort of peace missing about Jesus or the gospel or their walk with the Lord. And like Aquila and Priscilla, God has strategically placed us in people's lives to explain to them the gospel more accurately. You see, that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. And what I want to impress upon you today is that accuracy matters. Accuracy with the gospel matters because it is only the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. It is only the gospel that can bring people from death unto life. But if the gospel is distorted, if the gospel is twisted, if there are pieces of the gospel that are left completely out, it's no longer the gospel and no longer has the power to save. And so again, we live in a wonderful nation, a nation that was in many ways founded upon Christian principles and Christian truths, and I thank the Lord God for that. The Bible has been a cornerstone of our nation. It's been a big part of our culture for, for the life of our nation. Therefore, we have many people in this nation who know a little bit about the Bible, who know a little bit about Jesus, yeah, he, he, that's what we do on Easter, and yeah, Christmas, uh, something about a manger. and they, they know just enough to think that they know the truth, but they don't know it all. And it's our job to share the truth and to be more accurate with the gospel message and to not just assume that if someone says that they're a believer, that they're truly born again. I believe God wants all of us to be ready, willing, and able to share the truth, the full gospel, with anyone and everyone that we come across. There are many in our lives who 
don't fully understand the gospel. They never fully understood the gospel message. I remember a few, a few years ago, the, a precious lady in our church, she passed away. Um, this place was full for people who came to remember her life and celebrate her life on the, her memorial service. And again, I had the great honor of, of preaching at that service. And at every funeral I ever preach at, I preach one message. Can you guess what it is? The gospel. It's our only hope in life and in death. It's only Jesus. And so again, at that funeral, I preached the gospel. And as I looked across that room, I saw many familiar faces. And I'm like, these people have heard this a million times. But later that week, we had a precious lady who called the office. And her testimony was this. I've been a Catholic my whole life. I've gone to Mass every single Sunday. I've taken communion since I was a little kid. Confirmed this, catechism that, all the stuff. She said, I never understood the gospel. I, I never understood that Jesus died for my sin. I just want to call and, and tell you that I've, I've believed on Jesus. I've put my faith in him. I'm now born again. I, I see it now. I never saw it before. This lady's in her 60s. And we just assume, oh yeah, they say they're a Christian. Oh, yeah, they say they're a believer. Oh, yeah, they say they know about Jesus. We can't assume. You say, well, how do I know? Well, the, one, the one way that we, it helps us, that we can at least have an idea, is is there any fruit in their lives whatsoever that they believe in Jesus Christ? Is there any fruit whatsoever that they're following Jesus, that they're walking with Jesus? Is there any fruit? And if there's no fruit at all that they're walking with the Lord, that they're serving the Lord, that they're full of the Spirit of God, if there's no fruit, we should rightly assume that we need to instruct them more accurately in the gospel, that they need to hear the, the accurate message of Christ. If, if someone's life doesn't bear the marks of a believer in Christ, we need to share with them about Jesus, his life, his death for their sin, his resurrection so that they can have new life. John 14, 15 says, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, I'm not saying this in some sort of legalistic way, some sort of condemning way that we can look down our noses at people. Oh, they don't follow Jesus. No, but that we can, with the discernment that God's given us, prayerfully intercede for people in our lives that we are concerned about and look for opportunities to share with them more accurately the truth of the gospel message. I believe if you will do that, if you will move beyond your inhibitions, move beyond the fears you may have, move beyond the lies of the enemy that it says you don't know enough, and that if you will step out in faith, the opportunities the Lord gives you at the right time in the right places, God will use you. He will meet you there at that point of faith. And he will use you to bring people from death unto life to share with them the true saving message of Jesus. And again, I believe that we all have people in our lives that we should be praying for interceding for, standing in the gap for, 
that we shouldn't become weary in doing well, but that we should keep pressing on, believing that God will save them, believing that God will use us to help bring them the message of salvation. And if we don't see that there's any fruit whatsoever, we need to pray for their souls. Not in a condemning way, because, oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. Oh, but for the grace of God. But in a way of love and of service, to intercede, to stand in the gap, and at the right time to step out in faith and to share the gospel. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you that you have shown your light into our lives. Lord, that you have given us ears to hear, you have given us eyes to see, you, you have saved us. We see clearly. We see clearly that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. Lord, it's in him that we trust fully. We don't trust in ourselves, in our own works, in our own good efforts, which are as filthy rags. But Lord, we cling to the cross. We cling to your work of salvation. We have received you into our lives. We trust in you fully. We thank you for your work of salvation in our lives. Lord, that we have heard the gospel. We have repented of sin. We have believed upon Jesus Christ. Lord, for those in our lives that we love and we love dearly, Lord, once again, grip our hearts with conviction. Call us into prayer, into times of intercession, to lift up their names before you, to, to bring their names and their faces before your throne and ask that you would move in their hearts and move in their lives and that you would make the gospel message, the only message that has the power, make it effectual in their lives. And Lord, that you would give us opportunities, not to speak in, in, a, in a condemning way, but Lord, in love to share the truth, to share the truth that would bring conviction and, and that people's eyes would be opened. Lord, uh, wake us up from our complacency, our apathy. Give us a burden, the burden that your heart beats for because you so love the world you came and you lived and you died and you rose again so that we would not be burdened with sin and our iniquities and our failings and shortcomings, but you bore them on the cross for us so that we could share in, 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 in your presence and in your rewards for all eternity. Lord, once again, put this burden within our hearts. It's a commission. You've commissioned all of us to this great task, this glorious task. Lord, you may not have called us to stand on a stage and preach, but we can certainly, like Aquila and Priscilla, pull someone aside in love and share the scriptures with them. Lord, you've given us all of that ability. You've placed your spirit within us so that we might be your witnesses. Help us, Lord, as we go out from this place to leave, Lord, as missionaries, to go out into your harvest field, to work for you, to bring you a harvest, to prepare a harvest for you when you return. We look forward to that day with so much anticipation. Help us to be busy until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you.